Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Happy spring, everybody. It's here. It's finally here. We got some spring weather. The spring season is, is here. Time for growing and time for things to start turning green. So hope everyone is enjoying their early spring season since we last had a solo sode. But my gosh, how about the last two interviews with Dr. Chris Motley and his background on traditional Chinese medicine, the connection between emotions and, and different organs, and then follow that up with someone who's considered the top biological dentist in the world in Dr. Dominic Nishwitz, of course, affectionately known as Dr. Dome. And man, how about some of the knowledge bombs he dropped in that episode last week regarding oral health and in the three big killers being fillings, uh, cavitations, and root canals. I mean, crazy, crazy important information. And that's one, again, I'm going to go back and listen to a couple of times along with the Chris Motley interview because, gosh, those guys just drop so much knowledge in such a short period of time that it's kind of overwhelming, I would think, the first time you're listening to it and me being the interviewer, I'm trying to absorb as much as I can. But those are interviews I'm going to go back and listen to. So I hope you guys enjoyed them. But regardless, let's move on to the information at hand that we're going to cover here in this solo sode. And first off, before we get to the research article, and again, we're going to cover one article quite a bit in depth this week versus kind of skimming over several different articles. And, and there's a pros and cons for both styles, meaning at least when we go in depth in one article, we can really cover a topic heavily. You guys can get better understanding of the photobiomodulation research and the researchers on that specific topic. And there's also a pro to covering a multitude of different articles a little more superficially because that way you're able to see all the different ways that red light therapy can help on a more superficial level because sometimes you don't really need the nitty gritty details. But I think you guys will agree that today's topic being photobiomodulation or, or red light therapy and cancer certainly deserves to go a little more in depth because that's that's a topic I get a lot of questions about. People have a lot of very good questions, whether it's related to them or a loved one or, or a friend, what have you. They're curious if it's even safe to use red light therapy if you have cancer or if you might have cancer. And so the stance that I always have is that, and this is what I've learned from reading the photobiomodulation research, and then having a researchers or conversing with researchers like Dr. Praveen Arani on this podcast last year, just discussing with him, you know, is, is red light therapy safe for cancer? The answer still is, in a nutshell, that there are no contraindications for red light therapy, meaning there's no health conditioner, there's no reason you can't use red light therapy. And the caveat to that is with cancer, with pregnancy, just because we don't have enough information, we don't have enough research to definitively point one way or another, that it's best to not directly irradiate the site of potential cancer or malignancy or to directly irradiate the womb when you're, you're about to have a child. And so again, that's not because it's not safe, it's because we just don't know the potential ramifications. And I've mentioned this before in previous solosodes, for all we know, there could be a lot of benefits to directly irradiating an active cancer site or directly irradiating the womb when you're pregnant. You might uh, have a super baby, who knows? But again, the point is, better safe than sorry. 
So it's best not to directly irradiate the sites of an active cancer or if you're pregnant until we have further information. The research article we'll cover today will kind of further help elucidate some questions people have and give some answers. And I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but you'll learn that there's still a lot to be desired as far as a comprehensive answer from the photobiomodulation research. Again, we're relatively early on in this red light therapy game. And so with that being said, we do know there's many, many, many benefits to red light therapy, but also there's a lot we still have to learn about the specific nuances of how to use red light therapy in cancer, especially because you don't want to mess around and potentially accelerate the process or enhance the process of cancer. Of course, we want to fight it, combat it, prevent it, mitigate it in any way we can. And there are ways we can do that with red light therapy. But again, we need more research, stronger research in all these different types of cancers and areas so that we can have a more definitive and especially, most importantly, a more safe approach to red light therapy and cancer. But again, we'll get into that in just a moment. But as many of you who get the newsletter or the emails from BioLite and or if you follow BioLite or myself on Instagram, you probably saw this previous weekend that the time this has been recorded that we just released our newest product, the Glow, the BioLite Glow. It is a handheld product. The whole point behind it from my perspective is it's a simple device. It looks great, it's sleek, it's about a third of the width of the shine, so it's very slim, and the only thing you can do with the device is power it on and power it off. And so when you power it on, you get the combination of red and near-infrared light. You don't have light settings. Anytime you're using the glow, you're getting both red and near-infrared light. So for those that aren't worried about the nuances or those that are just more about the general health and wellness benefits of red light therapy, And again, you don't care about the nuances of when do I use red? When do I use near infrared? When do I use both? You just want the benefits of both lights. This is the device for you. It's simple. It's easy to hold. It's easy to travel with. It's literally the size of like an iPhone 14 or or something like that. Both the shape and the width and the uh, dimensions. And so there's the option of the stand as well if you want hands-off treatment. And this stand is quite a bit more versatile than even the shine stand You can raise it higher, and it's almost like a claw that can hold the glow, and you can rotate that claw 360 degrees, meaning you can rotate it, and you can adjust the tilt on it as well. So there's a lot of ways you can adjust how you want the glow height-wise and and angle-wise. With that being said, the other big benefit of the glow, and this is what I love about it a lot, is that the light irradiance is very, very, very low. And the point of that is, and you guys are probably wondering, well, isn't a higher light irradiance better? And again, kind of like the matrix, a lower and slower approach. But even beyond that, if you ever get a chance to utilize the glow, you'll notice that the light is so soft that it literally feels good. It feels calming. It feels relaxing on the eyes. Compared to all the other panels and even the Shine handheld device, which is a very bright and a very harsh light. And that's just kind of the price you pay for a higher light irradiance device so you can get more photons to a certain depth in your body. But there's also a time and place for having this lower light irradiance calming light. And so every time I turn on the glow in front of my computer, 
my eyes just relax and it feels good. It's almost addicting when you get this nice glow. Again, that's why it's called the glow, this nice glow of light on your eyes. And so that's one of the main use cases for the glow is putting it in front of your computer or by the side of your computer. I have a big monitor so I can put it in front and it blocks just a very small percentage of the screen. So you can put it next to your screen or or in front of it, what have you, to counteract that blue light that's coming from the screen. And so A, that's good for your eyes. B, that's great for your skin because there are some negative ramifications of all that blue light irradiating your skin or your skin being exposed to that blue light on a consistent basis. So not only are you protecting your eyes with this red and near infrared light, but you're also protecting your skin. And so again, this is a device where since the light irradiance is so low, it's very, very difficult to overtreat. This is something you'd have to have on for a couple hours on end before you got into the overtreatment phase because the light irradiance is so low. Unless you're directly touching the glow, the light irradiance is in single digits. That's how low it is compared to most panels on the market, which are triple digits, if not 150 plus, some companies market them. But again, this is almost single digits if you're not directly touching the device. If you guys want to go check it out, or if you're curious, if you haven't seen it already, just go to biolight.shop and you can check out the pre-order on the homepage or you'll be able to just find it under the product page as well. Go check out the Glow. Not only is it simple, is it sleek, portable, low light irradiance, so it's great for computer use and other screen use, but it's the most affordable handheld device that BioLite has to offer. And so it kind of brings the best of all worlds together in the sense that it looks great, it's simple, and it's affordable. And so again, with a low light irradiance, not only is it calming and healing for the eyes because of that low light irradiance, but here's a pop quiz. What's another tissue that requires a low light irradiance, or not even a low light irradiance, but a low dosage compared to the rest of the body? So we have the eyes. We know that the eyes requires a very low dosage compared to the rest of the body. But what's the other one? The answer is the skin. So if you're treating skin, whether it's for anti-aging or you're treating scars or you're treating a wound, so you're doing wound healing, those type of treatments take a much lower light irradiance. And so a device like this with the low light irradiance, like the GLOW, may be more beneficial or may be easier to attain positive results because you won't fall into that category or, or to that uh, trap of overtreating like you can with a higher light irradiance. And again, it doesn't take much for the eye or the skin to quote unquote overtreat. It's very easy, especially with a panel because we get into this mindset that we need to do 10 minutes or 15 minutes every day and that by far is overtreating when you're talking eyes or skin. So again, this is the device that I would highly recommend for those that are looking for something to have by their computers because I know the Shine was touted as that device or even the Recharge to have some red light therapy by your computer to mitigate the eyes and the skin consequences. But the Glow is now the best option given how calming and relaxing to the eyes versus irritating or harsh with a brighter light. So that'd be my recommendation. And for my loyal and lovely listeners on this podcast, I am offering you guys a limited time 15% discount on the Glow while it is in pre-sale. 
Right now you can pre-order it and the pre-order or the pre-sale will be live through the 17th. So you have, I believe it's a couple Mondays from the point that this episode is dropping. So you have a couple of weeks or a week and a half to capitalize on that 15% discount. Right now, there are no other ways to get a discount on this product, whether it's through affiliates or other coupon codes. It will be just through the coupon code for my loyal listeners. And so go to biolight.shop, use coupon code REDLIGHTREPORT to get your 15% off the glow. Again, red light report, specifically for the glow, while it's in pre-order through the 17th to get 15% off. For those interested or excited by this newer product, that's your opportunity to take advantage of a nice little discount on our newest product. But without further ado, let's talk about red light therapy in cancer. Interestingly enough, as I was going through a piece of research I wanted to talk about with you guys this week... I was skimming through and, you know, I probably went five or six articles before I came upon this one and I was like, aha, let's talk about some cancer because that's a hot topic with red light therapy. And lo and behold, so this came out in August, 2022, so about half a year old, but guess who one of the researchers or one of the authors on this article is? I mentioned him earlier in this episode already. It's Dr. Praveen Arani. And so there's a whole host, there's almost like a dozen plus authors but he's listed as number four here, which means uh, he contributed a lot to this article. And it's entitled Photobiomodulation Therapy in Management of Cancer Therapy-Induced Side Effects, Walt Position Paper, 2022. So Walt stands for World Association for Photobiomodulation Therapy. And I think it's called Walt because it previously was laser, but now they've changed it to photobiomodulation to be more inclusive with lasers and LEDs. So again, Walt is kind of the association that kind of speaks on red light therapy from an authoritative position. And so when they give a position or they provide dosages or protocols, those are kind of the gold standard as it relates to photobiomodulation. And this is out of the Frontiers in Oncology journal. Again, came out August last year. And so let's just jump into the intro. Did you guys know that it's teeth whitening season? Well, heck, isn't it always teeth whitening season? Who doesn't want to have the whitest, brightest smile in the room? And not just that, but also receive the benefits of red light therapy for the oral cavity at the same time. My company, BioLite, just released our newest product called the Guardian Plus, which implements both blue light for the teeth whitening aspect, but also the red and near-infrared light for the red light therapy aspect for your oral cavity. We're all familiar with blue light for the teeth whitening aspect, but did you know the blue light therapy is also beneficial for selectively killing harmful bacteria, leaving the beneficial bacteria thriving and well, and blue light therapy is also good for gum health and tooth sensitivity. And of course we know the laundry list of things that red light therapy does for the oral cavity, such as gum health and gum pain, infections and inflammation, wound healing, gingivitis, oral mucositis, so on and so forth. So with the Guardian Plus, you get the best of both worlds, whiten your teeth, and improve the health of your oral microbiome. So they go on to say that despite the ongoing improvements in cancer therapy, it is still associated with severe life-impairing side effects. Both treatment and patient-related risk factors determine the severity of the complications. Moreover, they negatively impact the patient's quality of life and daily activities. Therefore, effective supportive care strategies are necessary. 
There is considerable body of evidence supporting the efficacy of photobiomodulation for the prevention of oral mucositis in patients undergoing radiotherapy for head and neck cancer, chemotherapy, or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Recent advances in understanding the mechanisms of action of photobiomodulation and dosimetry parameters of photobiomodulation have resulted in examining other oncology-related conditions that may lead to effective management of a broader range of complications associated with cancer treatment. This could improve overall quality of life, adherence to cancer treatment regimens, and their outcomes while reducing cost of care. And so again, this is just a quick reminder. This is about cancer therapy-induced side effects. And so, as you know, with a lot of the radiotherapy or the chemotherapy that's related to the quote-unquote treatment of cancer, there's a lot of negative consequences, negative side effects of those therapies. And so this is speaking more to red light therapy helping treat those therapy-induced negative consequences versus treating the cancer itself. But we can certainly glean a lot of information, especially from this article, of course, as far as how red light therapy could potentially impact cancer itself, let alone cancer therapy-related issues. So, so let's move along here into the next section, which is the photobiomodulation parameters. Photobiomodulation parameters using low-level lasers or light-emitting diodes, of course LEDs, in cancer supportive care are usually within the red and near-infrared wavelength range between 600 nanometers and around 1,000 nanometers with a power density or, or light irradiance from 5 milliwatts per centimeter squared to 150 milliwatts per centimeter squared. And again, that, that 5 is actually pretty close to the glow, whereas that 150 is close to, to uh, some of the panels that are on the market. That's a wide range. Again, that glow, very low, very calming on the eyes, all the way to the end of very bright, very intense. But of course, from the cellular perspective, all, all that matters is that really means a less amount of photons or a higher amount of photons at a given distance for a given duration of treatment. So that's what really what matters from a physiological perspective. But moving along here, the duration of application varies according to the site, but it may well be within 30 to 60 seconds per point. While shorter efficacious treatment times have been used, and they're saying 2 to 10 seconds per point for these shorter treatment times with multiple spots that are clinically laborious, this could be attributed to cumulative photobiomodulation dose effects. The therapeutic dosage is depicted as the energy density measured as joules per centimeter squared and varies between 0.1 and 12 joules per centimeter squared. And again, that's for dosage, and that's per the current literature. And so just to step away from the article for a moment, when I tell you guys that I'm referring to my little table here, and this is the same table that's in the Red Light Therapy Treatment Protocols ebook that's uh, on the BioLight website. The Kindle version is also on Amazon. But there's that table I provide in there. So regardless of what device you use, as long as you know the light irradiance, you can adjust the treatments or adjust the protocols as necessary to meet the light irradiance of your device. 
or if you know the light ratings for your device is six inches and you need to increase it or decrease it, you can just increase or decrease your distance to maintain the same durations that I provide in that ebook. But regardless, my point here is for 0.1, that's a very low treatment. So for example, for a device that has 25 milliwatts per centimeter squared, and that would be about a quarter of the light irradiance of most panels at six inches, I should say, it would take about 40 seconds to get one joule per centimeter squared. Because again, like the article is saying here, the dosages, the therapeutic dosage is depicted by this joules per centimeter squared. So again, for a 25 milliwatt per centimeter squared light irradiance, it would take 40 seconds to get one joule per centimeter squared. Let's say for most panels that are around 100 to 125 milliwatts per centimeter squared at six inches, it would take about eight to 10 seconds to get that one joules per centimeter squared. And so back to the article here, they're saying that the therapeutic dosage varies between 0.1 and 12 joules per centimeter squared. Let's say you had a panel and it was 100 milliwatts, you would be in front of it for one second to get 0.1 joules per centimeter squared. Whereas if you're going for 12 joules on the other end of the spectrum that they're saying, you'd be in front of it for about two minutes. So from one second to two minutes is the range. And that again is per the current literature. So again, that that kind of displays or uh, depicts the wide range or the wide variety for a given dosage or a given protocol for a similar treatment, in this case, cancer. And I get this question a lot, whether it's through DMs or people reaching out to me through email, people are wanting very specific protocols for very specific conditions. And basically what I have to tell them is, hey, A, there might not be enough research for me to even provide you a protocol. B, reference this other protocol that is of a similar health condition. And then C, we can't get too caught up on the specificity of these treatments because look at here, even in the cancer, we have a massive range of potential dosages for a similar treatment. And so what I tell people is that at the end of the day, what ultimately matters, because red light therapy is so safe, is that your cells are getting exposed to this red and near infrared light on a consistent basis. You don't need to do it every day. Doing it two to three, maybe four times a week on a consistent basis is going to yield very positive results. So at the end of the day, that's what matters. Of course, if you're a physician or practitioner treating patients, or you're someone that just wants to dig really deep and have the most effective treatments as possible, which I guess I would be one of those people, then of course you want to dig into the nuances and the protocols and and really whittle it down as much as possible. But with that being said, you also have to understand that even based on the research for a lot of these conditions, the wide variety and the wide range of these protocols and dosages are so big that, again, as long as you sit yourself in front of the device and you don't over-treat, you're probably going to get some good results. And this is going to take years and years before we get more and more research, more high-quality research on all these different health conditions that we're really going to be able to whittle this down. And even then, there's just so much biodiversity or bioindividuality between you and me and your parents and your children and your neighbor that even if we are years down the road with much, much more research, there may still be this massive 
difference in a protocol because everyone responds differently to a given treatment. So we may never reach a time where we'll have a very, very precise protocol for every single condition. Everyone has a different lifestyle. Everyone lives at a different place on earth. And then the latitude really dictates a lot of your health and lifestyle, food, exercise, stress, sleep, yada, yada, yada. So there's there's many more factors than can ever be accounted for in research. This whole soapbox is to say protocols are nice and they're a great guide, but don't get too hung up on the nuances because, again, that's kind of getting stuck in the trees. And I think we need to step back and look at the forest, which is red light therapy has many benefits. Just expose yourself on a consistent basis and you're likely going to see positive results for darn near any condition. As long as you understand the fundamentals being red basically treats skin and near infrared treats things deeper than the skin, then you know which lights you do or don't need for a given treatment. And if you're just in it for the general health and wellness and anti-aging, then do both. And you're basically good to go in that sense. That's my little soapbox because especially recently, I've been getting a ton of questions about people wanting specific protocols or just wanting to know how to treat specific conditions. I understand that because this is a newer technology. It's an up and coming treatment modality. So people just want to know. And I think a lot of the listeners already understand that. But for people that are just joining this podcast or just kind of getting their feet wet into red light therapy, I kind of wanted to break that down for, for those people that while red light therapy has its nuances, in general, it's very safe and easy and effective as long as you're exposed to the light. So that's that. And let's move on here with the article. Just to backtrack a moment to pick up where we left off, they were saying that the dosage for a given treatment is 0.1 to 12 joules. And again, like I said before, that's about one second to two minutes of a variety. And again, that's based on the current literature. So moving along here, low-level laser systems used include helium neon, neodymium doped europium aluminum, I don't even know what that is, gallium aluminum arsenide, diode lasers, indium gallium aluminum phosphorus, and non-thermal, non-ablative carbon dioxide lasers. In recent years, LEDs with wavelengths in the red or near-infrared regions have become increasingly common due to their safety, low cost, and suitability for home use. So yeah, a lot of those lasers, some of them I don't even know how to pronounce those words, they're not necessarily a thing of the past, but again, those are laser-specific, whereas today, LEDs are kind of the go-to. They're safe, much cheaper. And again, for home use, that's the go-to. So the biological effects of photobiomodulation on the exposed tissues depend upon a number of variables, including the location of the cells in the field of exposure, cell type, molecular and redox state of the cell, the tissue microenvironment, photobiomodulation parameters such as wavelength, power density, also known as light irradiance, type of delivery as in pulsing or continuous, beam or spot size, and duration of exposure. I'm going to read that sentence one more time because I want to emphasize it. Because when people are considering protocols or when they're considering how their body's going to respond to red light therapy, this is why there's such a wide range in the protocols. And I'm going to say that sentence again. The biological effects of photobiomodulation on the exposed tissues depend upon a number of variables 
including the location of the cells in the field of exposure, meaning which cells are, are being irradiated. Is it an organ tissue? Is it a bone tissue? Is it a skin tissue? Is it a muscle tissue? So on and so forth. The cell type, molecular and redox state of the cell, the tissue microenvironment, photobiomodulation parameters such as wavelength, light irradiance, type of delivery as in pulsing or continuous, beam or spot size, and the duration of exposure. So that's a ton of variables when you're taking into consideration what the biological effects of a photobiomodulation treatment are going to be. And that's why it's tough to really nail down from research article to research article, even if it's the same topic, let's say they're both treating thyroid health, they could be utilizing completely different photobiomodulation parameters. They're obviously treating completely different human beings with different backgrounds and different lifestyles, so on and so forth. So that's why there's such a wide variety when it comes to red light therapy is because there's so many variables to take into account. But moving along here, it is well known that photobiomodulation therapy exhibits a biphasic dose response that warrants optimal tissue-specific radiation dose parameters. In other words, doses lower than the optimal value may have a diminished effect while doses higher than the optimal may have no beneficial or even adverse therapeutic outcomes. And so again, guys, you know that I harp on this all the time that we have that biphasic dose response, that bell curve where on the left side of the dosage is too low, you're not going to get the results you're looking for. And if the dosage is too high, you're going to have no benefits at all. And you may have some, they say adverse therapeutic outcomes. So you might have some detox symptoms, you may have some malaise, lethargy, rarely, but sometimes nausea, headaches, that kind of a thing. But that's why getting the dosage right underneath that bell curve is, is important. And so they go on to say that the effect of such a phenomenon has been consistently evident in published data on the effectiveness and particular disparity of photobiomodulation therapy in cancer complications. Titrating adequate doses and defining the essential photobiomodulation parameters as per evidence gathered in a systemic way for each indication is a prerequisite for the successful use of this treatment modality. Without standardization in beam measurement, dose calculation, and the correct reporting of these parameters, studies will not be reproducible and outcomes will not be consistent. A common misconception is that energy, measured in joules, or energy density, measured in joules per centimeter squared, is all that is necessary to replicate a successful treatment, irrespective of the original power, power density, and duration parameters. In addition, it is not uncommon to find discrepancies between the specifications provided by a device manufacturer and the actual performance of the device. And that's another very important thing, or another topic that I wanted to cover is, there's been a lot of articles written from individuals that have taken measurements of a wide variety of products in the red light therapy space from different manufacturers, from different companies, and to the point in this article where they're saying that there's discrepancies between the specifications provided by a device manufacturer and the actual performance of the device. There's a lot of companies in the red light therapy space that tout that their light irradiance is 100 or 125 or even 150 and up to 175. And I even saw one today that was 200 milliwatts per centimeter squared. And that's insane. If there's a company touting that their panels 
have a light irradiance of 200 at the standard six inches. That is absolutely unnecessary. And if they're marketing it as a positive thing that they have the quote unquote highest light irradiance, run the other way because that's a complete misconception and a complete misnomer that a higher light irradiance equals superior treatment or a superior device. Again, light irradiance is only one variable. And even in a device that has, let's say, 50 or 75 milliwatts per centimeter squared at six inches, you can increase that by getting closer to the device. You can decrease it by stepping away from the device. So light irradiance, again, isn't the end-all be-all. It's just one variable. And even then, you can still modulate it to your liking to a certain degree. But back to the issue at hand here is, again, there are companies touting a certain light irradiance, but when it's tested by a third party or tested by another individual, it's actually significantly less. And so there's a lot of these big companies out there, and I'm talking about a lot of the popular companies that are touting a certain light irradiance. For example, one of the most popular red light therapy companies out there, they tout that their FDA class two medical device has a light irradiance of 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared when the average intensity measured by this individual was actually 53 milliwatts per centimeter squared. That's a reduction of 89%. Another one of the top red light therapy companies, they tout that their panels have a light irradiance of 150. When measured, the average intensity was 70 milliwatts per centimeter squared. That's a reduction of 114%. There's a couple of other companies out there. One of the biggest discrepancies is they tout that their panels produce a light irradiance of 158, and again, this is all at six inches, when the average intensity measured, again, was 49. That's a 222% reduction in what the consumer thinks they are getting. And so you have major, major discrepancies in the light irradiance a person is getting or receiving with their product versus what's being marketed on the website. And this is an issue because if you're trying to build a protocol and you're saying, okay, my panel produces 150 milliwatts at six inches, then I need to back up to you know 12 inches to get this lower light irradiance. Well, when in fact the actual light irradiance of your panel is 70 at six inches, not the 150 that's touted by the company. So that's another issue in the red light therapy space is not only is there a variety of devices, whether it's lasers versus LEDs, different protocols used in the research, but you as the consumer, you're thrown for a curveball because you're not even receiving the device or the light irradiance that is being marketed to you or that's being published on the website. So that's something I really wanted to bring to people's attention, and that wasn't even intentional until I read this article and this section came up here. So I'm going to read the sentence one more time that kind of set me off onto the soapbox rabbit hole moment about light irradiance, but here it is. In addition, it is not uncommon to find discrepancies between the specifications provided by a device manufacturer and the actual performance of the device. Therefore, routine device maintenance, including power measurements, should be carried out regularly in the context of research trials and clinical practice. Moving along to the next section here, it's safety considerations. 
During the course of more than two decades of photobiomodulation use in the management of oral mucositis in head and neck cancer patients, limited significant adverse effects have been reported. Only one study reported a burning sensation following photobiomodulation therapy in 50% of pediatric patients, 9 out of 18. Given its diverse biological impact, consideration of photobiomodulation on tumor response to therapy and or tumor behaviors remains a critical question that has yet to be definitively answered. Given tumor genomic heterogeneity, it seems likely that the effect of photobiomodulation on tumor behavior, like drugs or biologicals, is not uniform and might provide an explanation that addresses the contra uh, contradictions of observations reported in the literature. Even tumors of similar histological characterization, i.e. squamous cell cancers of the mouth, vary, as is illustrated by 35% expressing dysregulations in the P13K pathway, a common photobiomodulation target. It is important to note that the limitations of in vitro studies in oncology versus the systems approach and clinical outcomes that are required. Clinical trials focus more on the effects of photobiomodulation on epithelial and connective tissue interactions, microenvironment, immune recognition, and on immune function. While cell culture studies may provide some insight into the potential mechanisms in vivo and human trial data are mandatory, and no firm conclusions can be drawn using tissue culture studies alone. So that last sentence kind of just highlights the point is that we need more in vivo, meaning human in the human body data, and we can't rely on conclusions from a petri dish to really understand the safety with photobiomodulation and cancer treatment. The next section here is in vitro and in vivo safety data. It is unlikely that photobiomodulation has carcinogenic effects in normal cells. The non-ionizing wavelengths of the red and near-infrared spectrum used in photobiomodulation are far longer than the safety limit of the 320 nanometer for DNA damage. No signs of malignant transformation in non-malignant epithelial cells and fibroblasts were observed following exposure to photobiomodulation with a wavelength of 660 nanometers with 350 milliwatts for 15 minutes during three consecutive days. In addition, malignant transformation of normal breast epithelial cells was detected in an in vitro study comparing the effects of different doses and wavelengths of photobiomodulation during multiple exposures. Conflicting data refute or support the potential for photobiomodulation to impact tumor activity and responsiveness. As noted above, given the lack of uniformity which characterizes tumor biology, it seems probable that tumors might vary widely in how they react to a range of biomodulatory activities that results from photobiomodulation exposure. The literature is rich with papers in this space. Many of the pathways associated with negative tumor behaviors are induced by photobiomodulation, including cell proliferation and anti-apoptosis. In fact, the effects of photobiomodulation on cell proliferation and differentiation have been investigated in cell culture systems in vitro using malignant cell lines and have generated contradictory data across a range of different tumor cell lines and photobiomodulation parameters. 
The next section here is human clinical safety data. A clinical study reported no differences in cancer recurrence rates for patients receiving photobiomodulation for lymphedema following breast cancer treatment compared to controls. A recent randomized control trial in which photobiomodulation was administered for the prevention of oral mucositis in head and neck cancer patients reported that a median follow-up of 18 months, patients treated with photobiomodulation had better local regional disease control and improved progression-free or overall survival. So there was an improvement when those individuals used photobiomodulation. Photobiomodulation in the red or near-infrared spectrum may be safe and effective in managing several complications of cancer therapy and hence should be considered for cancer patients. Given the lack of definitive data with respect to long-term survival and in recognition of the complexities which govern tumor responsiveness, it is incumbent on the clinician to fully inform patients of the potential benefits and risks associated with photobiomodulation. Given its tremendous potential in the oncology population, aggressive preclinical and clinical investigations are critical to fully understand those parameters which define tumor effects and patient's response or non-responsiveness to photobiomodulation benefits. And so the next section here is clinical indications. So it says that virtually all conditions modulated by photobiomodulation, for example, inflammation, ulceration, edema, pain, fibrosis, neurological and muscular injury, are thought to be involved in the pathogenesis of radiotherapy, head and neck cancer, chemotherapy-induced complications in patients treated for cancer. There's going to be a list here of different pathologies or areas where red light therapy or photobiomodulation may have a role to play in helping out in mitigating, reversing, or, or just preventing these negative side effects. And so uh, the first one being acute oral mucositis. And under each one of these conditions, there's a WALT recommendation for clinical practice guideline. So for example, for acute oral mucositis, they say that for prevention of oral mucositis with an intraoral device, WALT recommends a visible wavelength, meaning red light, LED or laser device with a power density of 10 to 50 milliwatts per centimeter squared for a total dose of 1.2 Einstein. That's right, a total dose of 1.2 Einstein per treatment performed within 30 to 120 minutes prior to oncotherapy. Other wavelengths, such as 400 to 1100 nanometers, may be used with suitable adjustment to dosing, but treatments must be monitored to ensure a non-thermal process. And again, that's for prevention of oral mucositis. But I think the highlights here is that you're using red light, and if it's an intraoral device, the light irradiance is between 10 and 50 milliwatts. That is why the Guardian device and the Guardian Plus is around 10 to 15 milliwatts per centimeter squared. It's because of research like this that shows that that is the efficacious wavelength. And we also know that the uh, gum tissue is quite light sensitive, so it requires a lower light irradiance. But again, the research is showing that you want something between 10 to 50. And again, that's for prevention. Then they also have for treatments of oral mucositis with an intraoral device. Similar parameters for a total dose of 2.5 Einstein. That's double the dosage 
compared to prevention. So if you're treating oral mucositis, you need to double the dosage. And they say that this should be used and repeated three to four times a week for at least 15 to 20 sessions or until healing after the end of oncotherapy. So they're even giving you a frequency there. And again, it's not every single day. They're saying three to four times a week. So I'm just going to give you a little spoiler alert. Out of all of these clinical indications that we're going to go over, there was acute oral mucositis, and then the next one where Walt gave indications, and then the rest are going to say there is inadequate data to provide clinical treatment guidelines, meaning there's not enough research or not enough information to provide a Walt recommendation. Out of the, gosh, almost 10 indications here, only two of them have Walt recommendations. So again, hopefully as time goes on, more research is done, we'll have more and more available Walt recommendations, which will allow us to have dosages and allow us to produce a uh, proper protocol for, for a given condition. But the next clinical condition or next clinical indication is xerostomia and hyposalivation. And if you guys remember from last week with Dr. Dome, the saliva is a very, very important part of overall oral health. It contains so many nutrients and, and minerals and uh, really magical substances within the saliva that bathe our teeth and bathe our gums and keeps our oral cavity healthy. And so if you have hyposalivation, well, yeah, you have a dry mouth and that's uncomfortable, but you're also missing out on a lot of health benefits. So it's actually a major health detriment if you're not producing enough saliva. So that just came to the top of my mind as I read that. But moving along here, they say that there is inadequate data to provide clinical treatment guidelines. Hence, we provide the following technical recommendations to further clinical treatments and research studies for photobiomodulation therapy in managing oncotherapy-associated xerostomia and hyposalivation. Walt recommends treatments with a transcutaneous photobiomodulation device, meaning going through the skin, so you'd be on the outside of your, your mouth. So again, a, a transcutaneous photobiomodulation device using a visible or near-infrared wavelength LED or laser device with a power density of 10 to 150 milliwatts per centimeter squared. So again, that's a massive range. 10 milliwatts per centimeter squared, again, that's like the glow, whereas 150 is, again, some of these quote-unquote high-powered panels out on the market. But again, as we've learned, their light radiance is actually lower than they market. But regardless, the article goes on to say that treatments should be repeated two to three times a week for at least three to four weeks, or clinical benefit is evident. It is noted that this protocol may have to be repeated after three to six months for sustained benefits. So I wanted to go through that little Walt reference or, or, or guideline to show that they're providing in slightly different time frames, whereas for oral mucositis, let me see here, I'm just scrolling up, they were saying three to four times a week for about 15 to 20 sessions. So that would be about five to seven weeks, depending on how many times you're treating. Whereas for hyposalivation, they're saying about two to three times per week versus three to four for oral mucositis. And they're saying for at least three to four weeks, so not as long. But at the same time, they're saying this protocol may have to be repeated up to three to six months to see results. And that's actually a similar time frame for those dealing with chronic pain. Since chronic pain is more difficult to treat, it's going to take a handful of months before you see some substantial results or, or pain reduction. Whereas acute pain, you can see pain reduction within the first treatment, certainly within the first week or two of using red light therapy. So the rest of these clinical 
indications, the Walt recommendation expert consensus opinion is going to be there is inadequate data to provide clinical treatment guidelines. So hopefully, again, as time goes on, we'll, we'll have more information and be able to provide particular dosages and protocols. But another clinical indication is acute dysphagia, which is characterized by pain and, and difficulty swallowing. So again, there's not enough data to provide a clinical treatment guideline. The next indication is acute radiation dermatitis. Another one is lymphedema. And of course, that's common with breast cancer-related treatments. Another indication is trismus. And trismus is a restriction in your jaw movement, which it can be due to a tumor, local infection, tissue fibrosis, pain upon mouth opening, or a tonic contraction in, in the muscles of mastication, like the masseter, that big, strong muscle on the outside of your jaw. Inadequate data to provide clinical treatment guideline, but hopefully in the future. The next one is bone necrosis. And so bone necrosis can occur due to radiotherapy of the head and neck cervical region. And it's specified as osteoradionecrosis, if that's the case. Or it can also be due to a specific medication. And this would be termed medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. So, so that's another clinical indication. No data to provide the clinical treatment guideline, of course. Another one is called Palmer plantar urethrodesthesia. And this is also known as hand-foot syndrome. And it is a side effect of many classic chemotherapy agents and newer molecular targeted therapies. But again, not enough data to provide clinical treatment guidelines. The next one is graft versus host disease. And one of the complications that can occur following allogenic hematopoietic stem cell transplant is graft versus host disease. And so this side effect is accompanied by skin, digestive, and oral problems. The mechanism underlying graft versus host disease is based on an immune reaction caused by the immune cells from the non-identical donor, the graft, that recognize the transplant recipient, the host, as foreign. So again, that can be relatively common and there's not enough data to provide clinical treatment guidelines. The next one is peripheral neuropathy and chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy is a common side effect of chemotherapy with an incidence of 68% in the first month after chemotherapy. Now that number is sky high to me. That means two out of every three people have chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. That's mind-blowing. Regardless, that's another potential clinical indication, but we will have to wait for more data to have those clinical treatment guidelines. The last several here, we have radiation-induced fibrosis. And so the soft tissue and lymphatic complications of head and neck cancer radiation are ubiquitous as more than 50% of the patients develop severe fibrosis. So hopefully, again, we can gather more information and have proper clinical treatment guidelines. The last couple here, chemotherapy-induced alopecia. And so chemotherapy-induced alopecia is a common side effect of chemotherapy, affecting approximately 65% of patients undergoing chemotherapy, although this figure is highly dependent on the chemotherapy agent used. Again, we need more information to provide clinical treatment guideline. You hear about all of these cancer treatment-related negative side effects or, or conditions. It's not like they happen every once in a while. You heard the last several conditions there. In peripheral neuropathy, it happens 68% of the time. Radiation-induced fibrosis happens 
more than 50% of the time, chemotherapy-induced alopecia approximately 65% of the time. So by and large, half up to two-thirds of patients being treated with chemotherapy or other agents are seeing these types of conditions. And so if we can find a way for red light therapy to, again, mitigate, reverse, or even prevent these negative consequences from happening, that's a major win for those individuals because as the introduction of the article stated, there's some major quality of life ramifications at hand here when those dealing with cancer treatments. So if we can find a way to really reduce the number on people getting those those negative consequences, that's a massive, massive win on their quality of life. But moving along to the conclusions and future perspectives of this article, they go on to say that cancer therapy is still associated with a wide range of acute and late complications that impair the patient's quality of life. Based on the evidence collected in this review, photobiomodulation has the potential to become a new preventative and or therapeutic option for a broad range of acute and chronic side effects associated with cancer therapy. The effectiveness of photobiomodulation for the prevention and management of oral mucositis has already been demonstrated. As such, photobiomodulation has been taken up in the general treatment guidelines developed by many entities such as the ISOO, the European Society for Medical Oncology, and the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. The aim of this position paper is to provide scientific evidence for the use of photobiomodulation in various cancer therapy-related side effects, and a rigorous effort is made to indicate specific photobiomodulation parameters. Future investigations should be performed to better define optimal photobiomodulation parameters, like the irradiation and treatment, for each of the complications. Concerning the safety of photobiomodulation in oncologic patients, in vitro, in vivo, and even recent clinical data have been generated. Even though the clinical trial results did not demonstrate adverse events associated with photobiomodulation, it is still necessary to treat cancer patients with caution when applying photobiomodulation. More in vivo studies with animal tumor models need to be developed to elucidate the effect of photobiomodulation on tumor and its microenvironment. Large clinical trials with a wide variety of cancer patients in which different photobiomodulation parameters are tested and that include a long follow-up period of at least five years are required to conclude that photobiomodulation does not negatively affect cancer progression and overall survival. An emerging approach in general medicine, which also seems to be important when applying photobiomodulation in cancer patients, is precision medicine. It is based on taking into account the patient's personal lifestyle, environment, and variability in gene expression. Each cell type, and especially tumor cells, may have different responses to certain photobiomodulation parameters and doses, which are caused by variations in the cellular microenvironment. As such, more personalized photobiomodulation protocols for each indication will be necessary for the future. Photobiomodulation in the daily clinical oncology practice setting may address a number of significant and common adverse effects. This may eventually reduce the incidence, duration, and severity of these devastating effects. Thereby, the patient will experience less pain and discomfort during and after their cancer therapy, which enables them to perform their daily activities during active cancer treatment and throughout survival. 
This will eventually result in improved patients' quality of life and optimization of their specific cancer treatment. Further, the treatment compliance of the patient will increase, resulting in an improved success rate of the cancer therapy. Thus, patient care will advance, which will ultimately result in increased patient survival. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the article. So I think that conclusion really encapsulates everything perfectly. We've come a long way. We understand red light therapy has potential, but we still have a long ways to go as far as proving its efficacy and safety for, for a host of different cancer-related conditions. And as you saw, one of, the, one of the criteria that they wanted, these authors wanted, was a five-year follow-up. So that means if some of this research started last year or even this year, we're waiting four or five plus years before we get that long-term study or that long-term follow-up to really validate and really prove some of the results that we're, we're hoping for. But again, that's not to say that you can't use it because we do have research showing that there are some, some ways that it can be utilized safely. But especially when it comes to utilizing red light therapy for cancer patients or someone dealing with cancer, we have to be extra safe and extra cautious because what we're trying to do is improve the quality of life, improve health span, improve survival, and not the opposite. So again, better safe than sorry when it comes to red light therapy and cancer. But again, a lot of potential, a lot of positive on the horizon. So we'll have to keep our ear to the ground as this research continues to come out. But as always, guys, I hope you enjoy the information. I hope it made sense. It was, it was thought-provoking. It was informative. And, and to some individuals out there, maybe it'll be applicable given your particular condition or, or, or situation, I should say. So I hope the information was at least helpful in that sense and provided some clarification at the very least. But as always, guys, if you listen to this point, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you for your support. Uh, if you haven't already, please just take a quick 15 to 30 seconds to go on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. Just leave a quick five-star review because that way more and more people will be able to find this podcast. And again, it's not about me. It's not about Dr. Mike Belkowski. It's purely about people getting this information, people that need it, that need to hear it and need to learn about red light therapy and all of its potential. It's for them. So, so take that quick 15 to 30 seconds and leave those quick five-star reviews. I greatly appreciate it. And as always, you guys have a wonderful week. Enjoy the spring weather, get out in the sun, and as always, light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.